Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ted Cover. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of education? I'm actually surprised that we haven't done this episode yet, I realized. Um, we've touched on this theme, I think, through talking about technological unemployment primarily, but we've never done a whole episode on education, so I figured it was time. Yeah, well, we've had like a general discussion of education things, but yeah, it makes sense to focus on this topic as it's a big part of society now and uh, might become even bigger as time goes on. And I think it's kind of a good time too, because some of the hype around uh, MOOCs in particular has sort of died down now. So I think think there's a bit more of a clear-eyed view we can take of these kinds of things, these kinds of technology. And so let's start right there with, with MOOCs and, and the state of that concept. These are massive open online courses. Let's say about a year ago, two years ago, there was a lot of hype about a lot of universities signing on to this idea, a lot of big name universities putting more and more of their classes online and making them free and open and some of these gigantic classes with thousands of students and this seemed to, you know, promise to revolutionize education by making it available to a lot more people at virtually no cost. And I still think it's a good idea, but I think it's becoming more apparent that there are some kinks to work out in the system, and that certainly this is not a panacea for education or something that's going to topple the higher education system anytime soon. But uh, have you had any experience with these, Ted? Have you ever signed up for one of these or started one? Yeah, so it's um, somewhat fortuitous that you're asking me this because uh, I'm actually right now doing my first ever MOOC. I obviously have been familiar with the concept for a while and I've looked over the course materials of a few of them, but I haven't actually like clicked join and gotten a username and, and gone into the forums and sort of done any actual classwork in one until this past month I started doing one that I think is pretty popular. Maybe our listeners have heard of it. It's called uh, Learning How to Learn, and it's uh, going through uh, Coursera. And I'm just doing like the free track where I'm not even doing all the assignments. I'm just watching the videos and reading through and like lurking the forums and trying to learn the material on my own. But it's been actually really interesting and more, I think, interesting as a as a process maybe than, than the content of the class necessarily, which I won't kind of get into, but like the ways that it's the same as and different from um, a traditional college class, uh, which I can still vaguely remember doing um, all those years ago, are, are pretty uh, striking. It, it has a, um, a quality to it that I think is really positive, which is that the lectures are broken up into tiny four or five minute chunks and you don't have to sit and pay attention for two hours. You can do it throughout the day or throughout the week. So that's really cool. But um, it also lacks urgency in a way that a scheduled class does. Sure. So I'm also finding that I'm slacking a bit more. And I think, you know, that's just my anecdotal personal experience with it. But I would say um, it seems to me like it would be tremendously better than some of the more boring, dry, large lecture hall classes that one takes as a first and second year undergraduate at most large universities, but that it might not be better than, say, uh, a focused seminar with an involved teacher and some, you know, uh, uh, active classmates. So I don't know. I think it's a it's an interesting thing that sort of sits in the middle of what our educational system currently offers. And I think it's 
definitely been overhyped by some people, but uh, I think it's going to be part of the mix of future education for sure, uh, that there are a lot of topics that you can teach very well this way. Yeah, you're already touching on a lot of the topics that I want to discuss. So, for example, you mentioned in passing the term lurking or being a lurker. Yeah. And I think right away you have to discuss that with MOOCs, the fact that we're finding out that people are engaging with these things in a lot of different ways, right? So I think some early detractors of MOOCs were pointing, say, to the uh, the terrible completion statistics, right? Where, you know, 97% sometimes of certain classes uh, of people wouldn't actually finish the course that actually signed up for it. Uh, right. And partially right. that's because of just the sheer large numbers of people, the fact that it's free and it's very easy for people to walk away from. But a lot of that is also the fact that people are kind of choosing the level which they want to engage with these things. So I think some people literally are signing up to see like what the course materials are. I know some people who just actually look at the book list, right? And use that as sort of a launching point for them to then leave the class and just go order some books on Amazon. Or some people want to watch a few videos and get a feel for it. Or some people will actually do all the quizzes but won't participate on the forums. Right. These classes enable a lot of different types of students. And so it's not clear if maybe these types of students need to be broken down to separate categories. Like you said you took the free track. Was right. that, does that mean that you're not interacting with any other students? No, actually on Coursera, the way Coursera works and every system I think is different uh, slightly. Uh, their free track includes everything but the uh, certificate and the, uh, the grading of the assignments that leads to the certificate. So you can still do the assignments, but uh, I don't think you get the grades back and then you don't get the, uh, it's called a signature track certificate. It's their branding for the paid, you know, the premium track. And um, if I wanted to try to get this uh, course to count for something, like if I were trying to get a degree or if I were trying to build a, you know, MOOC-based pseudo degree or something like that, uh, I would be interested in the certificate, but since I was actually just curious about the topic of the class, and, and actually when I started uh, working on it, I wasn't even sure I wanted to complete the class. If I had filled out a form, I would have said 50% likely to, to complete the class. I wanted to see, you know, I was interested in the topic, but I wanted to see how much I liked the teacher and whether I thought it was practical. I, w I wanted to experience it before I made that decision. So I went on the free track, which means I can watch everything, the quizzes pop up right in the videos, and I find that my level of engagement is I'll do them if they're multiple choice, because I want to see if I remember what I just learned. But if I have to write out an essay, which <laughs> I'm sure, uh, you know, has some pedagogical use, um, usually I'm too lazy to do that. I'm f I haven't uh, answered too many of those questions. I've just decided to skip them. But um, that's just the level of engagement I happen to have in this particular course. I think the material is interesting, but it's not that difficult. If it was more interesting and more difficult, I'd be doing more of the work. Yeah. Yeah. I think juggling these different levels of engagement is quickly becoming the major issue, right? With this kind of online education. By putting these classes online, it's kind of exposing how many different components actually make up, say, a college experience or a college class that aren't necessarily linked to each other, right? So, for example, the, the transmission of the actual information into the student's brain is only one piece of an educational experience, right? Right. The, the motivation to 
head in a particular direction and the structure is another piece, right? That can easily become disentangled from the first one I mentioned. Right. Uh, the certification, you know, the proof that you've learned something is a third piece and sort of the community aspect is a fourth piece. Uh, and these are all sort of naturally woven together in a typical classroom experience in a way that makes it seem like they're all linked. But once you put this stuff online, you can see that people can pick and choose one out of the four, two out of the four, three out of the four. And I think if the service is not designed to allow people to pick from that menu in the most efficient possible way, it's possibly a flaw in the system. And, you know, obviously there, these things are still being hashed out and worked on. Yeah, it's complicated because I think actually MOOCs do a pretty good job of simultaneously handling a lot of different goals. I think what that ends up screwing up, though, is the data that you use to judge them. Like, for example, the high dropout rate, which I think can easily be explained by the fact that most of these students aren't using these like a traditional college course to build a degree. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, what is education for? And if education is to uh, train people in running sort of, you know, bureaucratic marathons, like, you know, getting all the stamps on your passport or getting all the you know, the requirements of your major done um, in order to get a piece of paper, um, then MOOCs are, uh, you know, they could be deployed to that purpose, but the way that they're being deployed uh, where they're open to everyone um, doesn't, doesn't serve that purpose. But um, if, if, it, if education is just to provide access to information that people can engage with and access to other people trying to engage with that information, uh, you know, access to other students, basically, for the students, um, then I think MOOCs are, tr- just the way they are now, are tremendously well positioned to provide that. So you have to you have to kind of think about what you're, you know, what are you trying to do with education? And I think our old, our, our educational system is really just, it's trapped in a very old model where it's always sort of used this highly arbitrary uh, grading system, basically, and then a, you know, uh, a system of re- satisfying requirements on top of that, that's just sort of like a meta grading system to apportion credit. And that's always been problematic. And I think it's just getting more problematic now that the technology is, is laying bare just how much learning can be done, you know, uh, outside of the classroom, um, in other kinds of contexts, whether that's a multimedia class, like a MOOC or whether that's just you reading a book at home that you got from a book list, you know? Right. Um, and, and I think we should t- pause a moment it, just because we want to talk about the state of online education today. Like so much of it, of course, is not MOOCs and uh, has been going on for long before, you know, MOOCs was a buzzword. Uh, so, for example, it seems to me like, you know, the biggest innovations that we've had in education, you know, as of the last like 20 years are, uh, well, search engines, <laughs> obviously, uh-huh. Uh, and then the other big one is online video, like YouTube, honestly. Uh, you know, because like a lot of the other services that, you know, have been buzzy or had a lot of hype around them, like say Khan Academy is just curated YouTube videos, or a lot of people get a lot of use out of like lynda.com and that's just curated YouTube videos. And, you know, video itself is a really good medium. And, the you know, the development of quick working online video, which is still not a super old phenomenon... Right. Like, like, you know, like 10 years old at this point of it actually working very well. Right. Uh, I feel like that's been the biggest landmark. Uh, and I think there's tons of education that's going on that's, you know, outside of any structure whatsoever. That's just people 
watching videos and getting information out of them. Now, obviously, there's a curation problem there, which is why as simple an idea as Khan Academy can get Bill Gates funding because obviously YouTube is not doing a good enough job of curating educational materials on its own. But the idea of bundling all four of the things together that a college class does online makes me... The fear I have with MOOCs is that they're not doing any of the four jobs well enough unless they break them up, right? Because the first job you're trying to engage, like, you know, excite people and give them information that they want. And then the second challenge, like the sort of engagement, I think is maybe at odds with the idea of free and with the idea of how big the classes are. I mean, I think we can do a lot better than college, which is incredibly expensive, incredibly burdensome for people to pay for. And as you mentioned, some of the intro classes are incredibly huge, but not, but like not as big as MOOCs, but they're like big in an impersonal way. Well, yeah, they're big enough that they're similarly impersonal. I think once you have 300 people in an auditorium, you know, that's not that different from watching the lecture on a video on your laptop, as far as your engagement with your students. You know, and at least at the school that we went to, we often had a discussion group for a a class that size that would be uh, 20 people in a TA. And that can be um, recreated uh, technologically, although I'm not sure of any service that's exactly doing that at the moment. Right. That's what I'm saying. It seems like there's a middle ground here between traditional college and just making everything free and, and massive. The freedom of being digital you know, it means you can have a class that's as big as you want, and it means you can make everything virtually free, but maybe those aren't really the optimal choices, right? I mean, maybe the, maybe the optimal choice is, you know, a price point that's low. I mean, I don't know, like, I don't want to throw a figure out there, but maybe like 20 bucks a month or something. Something that makes people, you know, feel on the hook to be motivated to complete some of these courses, right? And, and take them a little more seriously by having invested a small amount of money, but still making it, you know, something that an average person can afford while also like making this a viable business model to where maybe you could actually hire more humans to engage in the way that TAs engage or the way that advisors engage, right? Like, I, right. W- I wonder if some of these companies... So like a Netflix for education, you subscribe to an all-you-can-eat amount of educational content, right? And then uh, we turn that money into more content and more engagement. And maybe you get an advisor that actually calls you on the phone or checks in with you via email, right? Uh, that's right. Uh, that you develops a relationship with you. Uh, and that's, of course, someone you'd have to pay. But if you were charging a small fee for this service, then that becomes viable, right? As long as that person can serve enough other people, you know, by having access to all their data and great analytics and stuff to, you know, make their job easier, you could imagine the economics of that working out. If it's like a one-to-one, you know, tutor, you can't be paying $20 a month because you can't pay the tutor $10 a month, you know, I mean... Uh, they'll have to be serving many more people, you know, per, per personal tutor. Um, right. Uh, so, but so, yeah, I mean, it does seem like it's possible to engineer a system like that, um, but you definitely would need technological help. Yeah, and that's why I'm saying that you can leverage the technology to make education cheaper and more efficient, but it seems like there's a lot of room in the middle between, you know, an expensive university education and everything being completely free and massive and open. Well, right. I mean, that's the, that's the spectrum that we're looking at today. The, 
you know, completely free, no support Khan Academy model where it's literally just a multimedia version of traditional teaching. It's just a video of somebody teaching you something, you know, um, and you can watch it. And if you get it, you got it. Like for some people, that's plenty. And for some types of skills, that's all you'd need. And all the way up to something where you like pay a fee to have personal access to uh, like TA type person. And I, I, I think they do have that as some of the services. Um, and you get some kind of accredited uh, certificate at the end of it, or not accredited rather, like some kind of certificate at the end of it that shows that you did it. And then, you know, obviously there's the university education, the traditional university education is still there where you get accreditation and there's artificial scarcity there because the universities won't accredit, you know, online places or they haven't done much of that yet. And you can, you know, it's, it, there's a prestige value to having done it at a university where everybody knows it was super expensive and, you know, difficult to get it done. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. E- but even certification, right? Like, why couldn't that be a separate? Like, okay, so again, I listed four. Well, the reason it, certification isn't separate is because there is a massive interest on the part of established prestigious institutions for that not to happen. It's not because... Uh, it's technologically impossible. It never was technologically impossible. No, no, impossible. no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm not complaining about the fact that, uh, you know, they're not willing to certify these online courses using their prestige value. Uh, of, right. Of- like you can't get regular college credit for doing a MOOC, even if it's coming out of uh, Stanford and has a Stanford professor and you do better than the Stanford kids at it. No, no, know, I, t- I totally understand that. That's not a mystery to me. I mean, they're, they're, right, they right. would be squandering their primary market value if they just went ahead and, you know, started certifying everything. Now, it's possible that some lower tier university might try to get a jump on the others by doing this first, say. Well, and it's it's plausible to imagine some institution might, you know, care about education uh, in the abstract and realize that they ought to do something like that. I mean, these things are ostensibly nonprofit uh, society serving institutions, but in reality, they don't act like that. They act like they're, you know, endowment maximizing behemoths. So obviously they do the thing that, you know, that's going to keep them, like you say, in a positive market position. Right. So but, so what I was going to say is, again, I'm just going back to this like sort of four components here, right? Which I, again, I think maybe all, like if I go through them, I think they all could be served by four separate companies, possibly more efficiently than putting any of them under the same umbrella, right? So mm-hmm. if people who just want to get information uh, and be entertained by it, uh, First of all, the internet is already great for those people. I mean, the internet is already... Yeah, you don't even need a company for that. This, the whole internet does that, and search engines make it accessible. You could probably do better curation, but pretty much that exists already. Right. And then the second thing, which we're not doing very well, is a sort of motivational structure, right? And that, I think, you know, you want an advisor or a person maybe, or you want to invest some money so that, right. so that you feel, uh, you know, engaged... Uh, and, and you know, maybe you can do this with gamification uh, or other motivational hacks. I mean, I think that's obviously being explored. I think things like Duolingo do that and they do it reasonably well. But mm-hmm. I think you could even imagine a company that all it did was provide you a learning advisor and then use the larger resources of the greater internet uh, and of the world at large to actually teach you. And all that you were really paying for was somebody to put those resources together, curate them, create a sort of course and harangue you to actually do it, right? Right. Um, That's the sort of uh, techno-enabled super tutor. 
Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, I feel like that, you know, could be a service on its own and that would be far better at handling motivation than it seems like the current milk structure is doing. Uh, And then the third thing is the certification. Now, certification is just trying to figure out if you actually have the skills, right? And that is a tough challenge, right? But there's no reason that that needs to be connected to any particular method by which you learn the skills. Like, it doesn't need to be connected to any particular class. The theoretical test you take at the end of the class doesn't have to be the same as the class you take, right? Right. There's a model for this in the world, which is the college board. Uh, sure. You know, they're like an independent company that makes the SATs and other major tests. And they're the same test everywhere. So obviously people teach to the test, but the teaching is done totally separate from the test. Right. So while, you know, you know Harvard sure. is never going to like, you know... Well, maybe someday, but I mean, they're not going to voluntarily just start like, you know, throwing their procedure around and, and certifying random classes. You could imagine a company that does sort of, and there are companies like this, obviously, that do certification, but say aim towards employers, say, or, or, or people, you know, basically cutting out the, the college sort of as a middleman. Right, right. And when you see this happen more likely with, you know, very specialized technical skills, like you can get, you know, Microsoft certified, or you can get Apple certified or whatever. And then, you know, that's something you can show to an employer that you're uh, deemed okay to work on that company's products at a high level, um, which, uh, which they have the authority to give out. And, and, you know, they have an incentive to make sure you know it because they don't want people having bad experiences with their products. But they're not an educational institution that's, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're not theoretically uh, committed to the public good. So they have their own criteria and their own regulations and, and what, whatnot. So. Well, and those are very, te- like you said, those are very technical. So it's a lot easier to quantify perhaps results in those particular fields or maybe not. But I mean, you know, actually measuring is difficult. I mean, certification is a huge measurement problem of the type that I'm talking about. So it's not easily done. Right. right. Already right now in traditional education, uh, there is tremendous debate among educators. And the only thing we seem to know for sure is that we don't have very good methods of examination um, really at all. I mean, there is no magic bullet to knowing what students know. And there's tons of pedagogical, you know, uh, debate along, along those lines. And I'm certainly no expert in that debate, but it's not, it's by no means settled. And, and people have very strong opinions about it. So uh, testing and certification are incredibly difficult challenges uh, wherever they are uh, located, whether they're done by the educators themselves or done by external parties. In both cases, they're difficult. Right. And But what I'm saying is that there they're seem like separate challenges then, or that seems like a separate challenge from the challenge of actually communicating information to somebody or motivating them to to do something. Again, these all seem like three separate tasks, all of which are extremely challenging, actually. So to for one company or organization at all to take on these things, it seems like a tall order. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some debate, honestly, as to whether the imparting of the information and the testing can be separated. And I'm not sure that I necessarily fall on one side or the other of that argument, but I'm sure there are people who would argue that you, you basically have to test on the site of learning. So I don't know. I, I think that that's a challenge, but I'm not. I'm not totally convinced you can separate that one uh, completely, or at least I'm sure there are some people who would disagree with that. Well, I think part of the learning process often needs to involve repetition and feedback and a cyclical arrangement where they give you information and they ask you about it, and that can help. I think 
engender the actual learning process. So I think you need to have some kind of testing on the learning side. But that, of course, is very different than, you know, sort of certifying that they know some discipline or field or skill set, right? I mean, I think, like, is that what you mean? I mean, I, mean, you- I, can, I can definitely see that uh, whether or not you count the work along the way uh, for the certificate does seem arbitrary as to whether the student learned the material. But uh, again, I, I, you know, I'm not an expert here, but I feel like there are proponents of the idea that there is no way to tell if the student learned the material after the fact that actually works, basically. And in the absence of that ability, the, you know, the grading from the ongoing testing is the only measure that has any uh, efficacy. I think that's the argument that people would make, that, you know, the, the final exam at the end of the year only tests how good a test taker you are. It doesn't test your mastery of the material because a good test taker can go in and basically fake it and ace the test. And I certainly anecdotally feel like I did that in school, but you know, that doesn't mean anything really. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that these things are separatable and that we just don't have the data to prove which techniques work for testing, which types of skills, but there are at least some skeptics. I think that, uh, that you can effectively do tests like that. I mean, certain things you can do competence tests. You know, if you're learning to be a mechanic, you can give somebody a broken engine and tell them you have eight hours and you have to make this thing run. Um, so there are competence tests that, uh, and in computer science, there are competence tests and in other fields. So if there are competence tests, I have a fairly high confidence that, um, that you can separate certification. But if it's something that's more abstract... Uh, something in the humanities maybe i'm not uh, i'm not convinced that you can completely separate it you may have to just bake it in to the the repetition and learning that goes on like at a certain point you may just have to admit that the the grade is based on your continued effort in the class yeah. and that there is no way to really justify saying that you mastered it you can only say like you went through it and you did all that was required in a way that made sense. Well, no, um, no, 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 because I'm sympathetic you know? to that. I mean, basically yeah. what, what it sounds like you're saying is, which I would totally agree with, is that we don't have good enough technology to know whether when somebody took a history class, they learned the history or absorbed it or something that's like softer and less technical, right? Yeah, I mean, in the and case since of we a history class, it's hard to even know what what does learned the history even mean, right? I mean, that's like... It's, I mean, they, we can test if they learned the dates, you know, but I feel like if what you're trying to teach is like a historical perspective, that's really subjective, really right. hard to but, test. But yeah. since we don't actually have the technology to know what is and isn't in someone's brain, some people might advocate substituting a weaker version of certification that's basically, did you have a particular experience, right? Did you jump through certain hoops? Like, did exactly. you did you spend right. Which, X that time? Something else, and that's too, that right? you can do. I mean, that just is dumb certification. I don't think that's certification on the learning side. That's just like saying, okay, you you were in this class. We saw that you signed up. We saw that you finished it. We saw that you jumped through X hoops on the way during the class. We can. We can certify that you had a class experience. We have no idea what's actually in your brain afterwards, but we know that, like, at least you sat through something, right? And so, like... Right, I think that is accurate. And I think a lot of our schooling system is based on the assumption that if you sit through it and do what we say, 
that it was in some sense a success. And I think part of what's so frightening to the educational um, establishment about the MOOC phenomenon is not the specificity of MOOCs or the freeness, but is the the reality that um, at some point soon we might start to have some objective measures of this stuff. And I think that's going to call into question, you know, w- what is actually efficacious in terms of pedagogy? Yes, <laughs> this is a hard, hard question. But if we do get more data on it, we might find some troubling things, I'm sure. Uh, I think we're going to find that we, I mean, I think we're going to find some, you know, that we can learn a lot and that people can be taught a lot, but that a lot of the things that we're doing are, are not optimal sure. um, for teaching people. And I think, you know, again, it all does come back to like, what are you educating people for? Because our university system is based on a very specific place and time and class of people. And I feel like it's now been extended far beyond that. And we probably do need much more flexible models of education to a, a, a accommodate lots more different types of learning for lots more different reasons. Right now, there's just basically learning for learning's sake in the classic academic Renaissance model, and then there's technical training for the purpose of getting a specific technical job. And that's basically it. There's some, you know, blur between the two, but there's not a whole lot of other educational models out there in terms of like institutions, you know, existing institutions. Uh, And it, it may be that we need other models that have other goals in order to, uh, you know, provide for a lot of the people who, who want to learn out there. Yes. Uh, Again, there's so many different ways that you can design an educational experience, I think, which, again, I think the problem that I'm pointing out about MOOCs is that they are still, even though they're trying to break free of the traditional academic model, uh, by virtue of being so big and so open, I feel like there's a long way to go in terms of totally exploding that model and exploring. Well, I'm not even sure that they are trying to break free of it. I think they're just trying to innovate on the the classic model and make it more accessible and there's positives and negatives to that accessibility as we've been discussing um personally like you know the i don't think it's a problem if MOOCs have a high dropout rate i think that that actually shows a major strength which is that lots of people can dip their toes into a college level course uh and, and i think that's a wonderful thing um what I'd be much more interested to see is uh, if there's some kind of competence test in the field, you know, how well are people who've gone through the MOOC and completed it doing versus people who've gone through and completed uh, a regular class version. And, you know, my guess is that there'll be variation among individuals. Some things will work better for some people than others, but that on average you won't see, uh, you know, a huge drop in um, in abilities uh, with MOOCs. As you know, for those people who took them seriously and went through them, because that's what they wanted to do. I don't know. I mean, what do you think about that? You think that they're not doing as well a job? Uh, n- as well a job as traditional education, or yeah, like within you know within like if you were to take apples to apples, you know, if you were to compare the kids who finished that uh, Sebastian through an AI course uh, that was so famous with kids who finished that exact same course with Sebastian through at Stanford the year before. 
do you think it's likely that uh, one group of kids knows the material better in a you know in a competence test of write your own uh, simple search engine, which I think is one of the final assignments? No, in that class? no, I think probably of the. I would guess, and you know, I'm sure there's actual data on this. There is. I mean, that's but, why I mentioned it because we can look this up later. Right, I don't know it off. But my off my, my assumption would be that of people that finished the MOOC course, uh, they would be they would have learned the material just as well, if not better, than the actual students. Uh, but I think that that speaks a lot of what type of people those are. Those are obviously highly motivated people that... Uh, of course, but in both cases, I mean, Stanford uh, computer science students are also highly motivated, uh, just, I'm sure, on, on average. Um, it's sure, but so, I, yeah, yeah. So, I think it's an apples to apples comparison. Well, though, so Stanford like, does it by having an application process that basically weeds out the demotivated and less, you know, sure. uh, intelligent as students. Well as, so they right. they already off the bat have a pool of people that are in this category, whereas the MOOC sort of just finds them. I feel like all the MOOC is really doing is it's curating. Uh, some information very well for basically self-starter p- type of people. I just, I mean, I just feel like yeah, there's a absolutely. lot of room. And I think that's where the MOOC doesn't do that well because uh, motivation is not intrinsic for all people. And like you were talking about, a motivation service might increase the value of MOOCs to a less motivated student uh, considerably. That's what I think. I think we need innovation in terms of motivation. And I think that we need innovation in terms of certification and the third thing that we need innovation is is in terms of these communities, and the technology may simply not be good enough these days to to generate the type of community experience online that you can get in the physical world. Uh, that's just maybe not good enough yet. But I think that you know these are the three things that we need to grapple with in online education and start doing better, right? Because just sort of the curating of the material and the presenting it in a easily digestible, entertaining fashion, yeah, I mean, that's something that, the like I said, the internet already does for people that are motivated. Now, again, you know, for somebody who's motivated and wants to learn AI, I'm sure Sebastian Thrun does a very good job of curating the right material so that that person, you know, doesn't have to, you know, dig so much to figure out what it is they need to learn, uh, right, right. And I'm sure that, you know, he's a talented uh, teacher. I'm sure he uh, explains the concepts in ways that are, you know, better than than other people's explanations. I, I, I have confidence that that's the case. Um, but yeah, you absolutely, it's complex material. You absolutely have to attack it with vigor to get anything out of it. And that's, you know, the motivation that is added to a Stanford student is that they're paying a tremendous amount of money, they have a limited amount of time, and they have a kind of score sheet that they need to fill up. And what's happened so far is I think the MOOC companies have all attempted to copy that model with limited success. Because I think what that model does, it assumes that your, your target audience is a, you know, traditional college student. And I think uh, the kind of person who wants to learn on the internet is so much broader than that. It, that's one kind of person, but there's many, many more types of people who want to learn on the internet. And therefore, uh, that model isn't going to work as an all-in, uh, you know, you go to one company and they, uh, you pay them a lot of money, you have a time limit in which to do the material, and, uh, you know, therefore you're motivated to engage with it really hard. Um, kind of model. 
uh, that that the colleges um, can get away with because they provide this certain community thing. Although you know the community aspect of college is highly limited and it could be improved maybe by the internet. Um, it's not clear that that's the best possible model. It's just one that's been around a long time. People have some trust in it. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the internet can be yeah. better at, you know, joining people with, you know, common interests uh, more efficiently. Uh, so that's right. something that the internet has on the real world, but, you know, the real world has, you know, high resolution interaction in, in 3D space, which is pretty, right. you know. There's three extra senses that we don't get at all over, you know. I mean, there's a lot about college that's about, um, you know, physically being in the same space with other persons um, that you might not otherwise be in the same space with. And so, you know, that's going to be hard to recreate online and there's going to be a certain premium on, you know, college as a place to be young and have fun while also being in an intellectual environment that your parents approve of and will fund uh, that will, you know, that's bound to continue, I think, uh, regardless of what else happens in education. The other thing is that, you know, the institutions that are most well-suited to benefit from and produce MOOCs are, of course the most prestigious and well-known institutions of learning that already exist. And there is a certain amount of this already going on. Harvard and MIT and uh, Stanford are, are all doing some MOOC production and there's other um, places of, of prestige that are doing stuff like that. And uh, they have the potential to harness superstar effects and really become uh, sort of the gold standard worldwide way you learn something. If they cho- if they so chose, well, um, and and I think there's a business model somewhere in there where again with a subscription, people would pay a subscription fee, especially if it had some of these like motivational services like partially built into it, and it was well curated and it had a great interface. Um, I think you could possibly make a lot of money this way. I don't think that you're going to see Harvard spearhead that because that type of business just runs completely counter to their whole you know prestige model. Uh, yeah, but you could. So the thing is, if you had the vision, they could use their prestige to corner that market and keep anyone else ever f- from coming into it. I mean, if you could go to harvardtutor.edu and pay a uh, Netflix type price, a $10 or $20 a month fee, to have access to all Harvard course materials and a personalized, uh, you know, semi autonomous, uh, like combination of software and a TA. Uh, that looks after your stuff and provides you with uh, motivation and feedback. And you could just, you know, life learn uh, at, a, at a high level through this system. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, as I'm describing this service, I'm thinking I might sign up for this. Um, Especially if it's all, like, you know, you rack up achievements and badges. I mean, I'm imagining oh yeah, a very... super gamified. And, and, a, and it would be like a sort of parallel system. It's not like you're going to get a Harvard University degree at the end of it. But whatever you get says Harvard on it, and it's like, you know, um, maybe there's an application process where they don't let every single person who wants to in. You have to, you know, do some aptitude testing or something to get let in so that they can maintain their uh, high-end prestige brand. But uh, I don't know. I see that becoming, um, you know, like a gold standard. Like uh, if you're going to go do a MOOC, uh, may as well do the the best one that that's available. Well, I feel like someone needs to do this because yeah, it sounds great, right? I mean, it, that, that that's part of my issue here is that uh, 
the promise in my head of online education is not exactly what seems to be happening yet, but I think we'll get there. But yeah, I mean, what you're describing, this sort of like, like an interface that's like really well designed where you are somewhat invested and you are getting motivational support and it is highly gamified and you are getting access to like top tier quality materials and lectures and, you know, whether that's Harvard professors or not. Yeah, sounds like an awesome service that I think lots of people would pay a modest monthly fee for, right? I mean, yeah. so, so yeah, I mean, maybe someday we'll get there. It seems like that ought to be a viable business model. There maybe is all kinds of reasons why it's not that aren't occurring to me. Uh, but yeah, it seems like dubious to me that it would be hard for a place like Harvard to make that switch because they're so dedicated to their sort of prestige and elitism and exclusivity um and and to me it seems like that's like that's the best way to actually get your value out of that prestige is like let everyone buy into it at some level maybe i guess the the fear is you erode it but if you made really high quality stuff i'm not sure you would erode it i think if people's experience was like man i did that you know harvard service and it was too hard for me i couldn't I couldn't get the grades that I wanted to get, you know, that would only add to its prestige in my opinion. Well, I mean, if you want to gamify it enough, you can make it competitive. You can have, you know, leaderboards and right. things like who did the quiz the fastest and, you know, got right, the- right. And well, there could be real prizes where if you, you know, if you are doing so well in the class that you're doing Harvard student level work, then you could, you know, transfer into the real school if you wanted to or something like that. I mean, it could potentially have very real, you know, incentives, uh, they have a lot to offer there. So, uh, and not just at Harvard, at any top 50 school, I think you could pull this off, but obviously the, the, the older and more well-known the name of your school is probably the better you do in, uh, in a situation like this. I don't know. It's interesting to me. I, I think you're right that, uh, so far what I think we've seen in, in, um, educational technology has been pretty politically motivated and has been more about how do we cut costs because, we have, you know, political problems getting money for schools and, um, you know, they cost too much. And uh, so can we take something out of the school and substitute technology for that thing and uh, call it even? And I think that's a, that's a poor way to look at things um, because when we reevaluate what's, a po- what's possible with technology we, and, and go, you know, go back to why are we doing this in the first place, we can make things better. But if we're just like, oh, well, maybe I can eliminate a teacher position here and have the kids staring at a screen a little bit longer. Um, despite my great hope for technology as an educational tool, I'm not sure that that, you know, ends up paying off in the long run. Yeah, substituting screens for teachers <laughs> sounds terrible. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to kind of parody some of the... Uh... Uh, it's a little bit extreme, but I think that's definitely some of what we've seen going on. I mean, there was like a big kerfuffle in LA recently where they ousted the superintendent over buying all these iPads for kids using uh, like construction bond money that was supposed to go to, you know, people thought it would go to like le- fixing leaky roofs. And, you know, there's an argument to be made that iPads are crucial technology and that's a crucial upgrade to the system. But, uh, you can see why it look, it seems like they're stealing money out of, uh, you know, it seems like they're taking money away from something truly important and putting into something frivolous. And so I don't know, I think that's a certain amount of what has been going on under the, you know, because of a buzzwordy nature, you can say MOOC and you can say digital and people will go ooh and ah, and they won't think about 
what specifically are you using the technology for? Yeah, they're for? not going and back to first principles. Yeah, you know, and what, yeah, what, well, and I think yeah. that's, yeah. What? That's just like something we talk about a lot here because I think it's important with these massive technological changes, they make so much more possible. We have to stop and think about, well, what are we really trying to do? Because the, what we were doing before might have just been the best we could do with the crap technology we had. And just dragging all those limitations into the new system is is almost never the best thing to do. So anyways, uh, we need to wrap up soon, but sure. there's one, we've talked a lot about online education and MOOCs in general, and I think that's probably the, the biggest area to talk about when we're talking about education both today and in the near future. Uh, mm-hmm. But one other technology that I want to bring up uh, that has some promise in the future, the same way that I think that online video being quick and easy was a major landmark for education. I think the next mm-hmm. major landmark might be augmented reality because of the way that that might facilitate uh, learning while doing. Uh, yes. Especially like learning while doing out in the physical world. If you're trying to learn yep. something with your hands, say, like play the guitar or work on a car engine or so. Or I can come with a, a perfect example. I had a very frustrating experience not too long ago. Uh, because I decided at the very last minute uh, that I wanted to learn how to tie a bow tie. Sure. And that is something that you're, there are videos on YouTube that will teach you how to do it. So I thought, I'll do what I often do, and I'll look up one of those videos, and I'll watch it a few times, and then I'll be able to tie a bow tie. Well, it turns out that tying a bow tie is challenging and requires your hands and requires a mirror, and it's very, very hard to watch somebody do it and figure it out. And if I had turn-by-turn instructions popping up inside my glasses for, okay, now pinch here, you know, and now twist there, and, you know, uh, here's a dotted line showing the movement here, uh, I think it would have been tremendously easier and taken me a lot less time. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. And I think that will be really incredible for learning when we have that kind of technology. And I hope that's, that's coming sooner rather right. than later. Uh, one unintended consequence of that, too, that I just thought of is it will also be, um, I think, a massive game changer for assessment because you'll be able to do automated competence-based assessment. Can a person follow a series of steps correctly? Uh, imagine that you're trying to certify somebody has learned the proper safety procedure for dealing with Ebola patients, right? to use something topical and in the news. It's like a 23-step procedure. It's so complicated that a bunch of the nurses have gotten it wrong and caused uh, additional spread of the disease. Um, It's something that could be really important in an outbreak-type situation. You can have glasses that are video monitoring people's movements, analyzing them, and if they don't seem like they have completed a step correctly, they can pop up, did you complete this step? You know, and remind people and make sure that they are doing everything right. So you're talking about using the augmented reality technology for monitoring. Right. But is it exactly is it ideal for monitoring? I guess like you're seeing what they're well, it, if it has it would, a camera it, built into it, I guess you're seeing what they're seeing as an extra stream of information. Is that what you're right. thinking? You're seeing you're seeing their point of view. Uh you have a face mounted computing device so uh, they can be using both hands and still capturing the data and you don't need another person there to witness them the way you would in an examination, a one-on-one examination. You could do a driving test without a driving instructor uh, in the car 
where you're just, I mean, that doesn't maybe make sense because maybe we won't be driving cars anymore, but like just as an example, um, you know, you can be wearing the glasses, they'll be recording everything you're seeing and everything you're doing with your hands within your field of view, and they can have intelligence on board to automatically um, give you feedback. So good for learning, but also potentially good for assessing things that right now require a physical person there or where you look at the outcome of a process, but you don't get to see all the steps. I think that's um, intriguing. That sounds to me like a harder challenge and a different challenge because it requires that the system is doing a lot of on-the-fly pattern recognition to identify. I mean, assuming this isn't yeah, just... Yeah, but a lot of that might be commodity, cheap software by the time... We're, because, you know, something like recognizing hand gestures, they're already building libraries for that, for these augmented reality technologies, you know. So you may be, uh, you may be at a point where, like, it can recognize, you know, a hundred different hand motions and a thousand different objects, and you can just basically write a piece of software that sits on a server somewhere and uh, algorithmically figures out when to intervene or when to dock points or whatever it's doing. Yeah, well, that would be incredibly helpful. But yeah, I, I, it seems... I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this. It seems to me like your theoretical bow tie right. usage of this technology would be a fair bit simpler than some of the, the modern. Well, you'd have to do a lot of the same thing. You'd have to like tell where you are and where the bow tie is and how it's twisted and where your hand is at. And it would then, you know... I mean, I think ideally it would not just uh, list the steps in order. It would actually react to what it's seeing you do. Yeah, I, um, I guess there's there's smart and dumb versions of this, right? So, I mean, just having a heads-up display that's walking you through steps and maybe it needs to be calibrated a little bit to know what right, it's looking at. Right, and you, at. you just, like, say next and then you get the next step. Like, that's already going to be away. kind of... Right, that's that's an earlier an earlier thing to accomplish. But even sure. that, I think, has some uses that are maybe pretty impressive. But yeah, you're, mm-hmm. you're talking about a mm-hmm. smarter one that really knows what it's seeing and when to intervene. Yeah, would yeah be I mean, a, I'm assuming that when by the time this is ubiquitous, we also have uh, a library of pretty good uh, uh, vi- computer vision uh you know, recognition routines that, um, that work pretty well that you can kind of call on as a, you know, when you're writing software. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's not, I guess, uh, for sure. That's just something I'm expecting, I guess. Okay. Well, uh, let's wrap up there. Cause it's been a while now, but, uh, uh, thanks for listening. And yeah, uh, this was a pretty diffuse, uh, uh, discussion, but hopefully there were some things that were of interest. Uh, we want to hear what you think is in the future of education and uh, how how might we serve more people and get more people to learn more things by using technology in the future, right? Yeah, go ahead and send us emails if you have any thoughts about that, and if we uh, if we get any good ones, we'll, we'll respond to them perhaps in a future episode. Uh, thanks for listening, and um, we'll talk to you uh, again next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.